Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to the podcast. We have an exciting episode for you. Joining me is Dr. Carolyn Kuski, the Executive Director at the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. This is the second time Carolyn has joined me on the podcast. In this episode, Carolyn shares the eight recommendations on climate adaptation for the Biden administration she has developed. We go through all eight recommendations and discuss what they mean. We're likely to see a lot more action on adaptation with President Biden coming into office. I'm also excited to announce we have a new semi-recurring segment on the podcast, Adapting to Climate Change with Alice Hill. Alice has been on the podcast before, and based on some offline conversations we've had, we thought it'd be great to hear her on a more recurring basis. So in these shorter segments that we originally recorded in Simpatico Studios as a streaming TV interview, Alice and I will go over topics she has recently been commenting on. In today's segment, after the interview with Carolyn Kuski, we talk about wildfires. Stick around to hear Alice weigh in on these important adaptation issues. I'm very excited to be hosting Alice semi-regularly and getting her contribution onto the podcast. Okay, we have started a bi-weekly newsletter here at America Adapts. We highlight the latest episode and news and stories related to that episode's topic. We also highlight other climate pods and share a few other adaptation-related goodies. In the show notes, there is a link to subscribe. Please do. Coming up on the podcast, America Adapts is going to Hollywood. Well, sort of. I have on Cheryl Slane from the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we learn about how that conservation group is trying to encourage new narratives around climate change, and that means working with TV and movie producers. Also returning is Dr. Jesse Keenan from Tulane University, and he's going to give a primer on maladaptation, a topic we haven't dug into enough on America Adapts. It's a full slate coming up. Okay, adapters, let's join in with Dr. Carolyn Kuski and hear what her eight climate adaptation recommendations are for the Biden administration. Hey, adapters, today I have a very exciting episode. I am talking with Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Carolyn is the executive director at the Warden Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also directs the Policy Incubator. Hi, Carolyn. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. All right, I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today. Even though you've been on before, I think it's important. Could you just briefly explain what the Risk Management and Decision Processes Center is all about? Yeah, sure. We are a research center affiliated with the business school at Penn, and we do a wide variety of research and policy and student engagement work on issues of risk management. And increasingly, that focuses on climate risk management, since those are some of the biggest risks that society is now facing. In our previous conversation, we talked a bit about wildfire risk, and I think even since then, we've seen quite a bit of wildfires. And so you've probably been pretty busy at the uh, the center. Yeah, climate disasters show no signs of slowing, right? So <laughs> there continue to be lots of challenges and um, things to work on. They're going to keep you busy for a long time. So we have a new administration coming in, um, President-elect Biden. And, you know, when people listening to this, he'll be President Biden, hopefully. And we are all hoping that a lot more action is going to be taken on climate change across the board from mitigation, but in our areas related to resilience and adaptation. And what you've come up with is a, a list of eight recommendations that you are proposing to the, I, I don't know if it's proposing directly to the Biden administration. Maybe you want to give some background on that, but so, yeah, just give us some context before we dig into those. Yeah, sure. I think there's been widespread recognition that we're not doing as much as we can as a country to promote climate resilience. And while clearly the first order of business should be to stop making the, pro the problem worse and, you know, reduce our emissions and the incoming administration has already, you know, made a number of announcements about, about those types of policies. We're going to continue to see these escalating climate related disaster losses. And so what I put together here is I think one possible roadmap for how we can start building that culture of resilience across the country that we're going to need as these impacts just keep getting more severe. And I guess a little bit more background. I'm guessing with some of these recommendations, we probably saw some of it going on in the Obama administration, but they've sort of taken a back seat in the most recent administration. But were there new things that I guess that came up in the last few years that really informed what you came up with here? 
Yeah, that's a good point. This is a collection of ideas. They're not all just mine. You'll see um, if you look at it, I link to lots of other proposals. Some of these issues are things that have been known about for quite some time. Some of them are going back to things un- that had been done in the Obama administration, like um, the flood risk management standard, for example, that the Trump administration rescinded. Others are completely new ideas. Yeah, so I think there's a whole range of things here, and there's been a number of scholars and NGOs and other folks involved in climate adaptation and disaster response that have really been accumulating the set of policy challenges that we have to deal with in this space. Um, And so what I tried to do is pull all of that together in sort of a comprehensive approach to federal policy. And I should stress this. This is about federal policy for climate resilience. There's, of course, complementary things that need to be done at the state and local level as well. But this is geared at federal agency and things the administration can do, but also things that Congress could do. And I really applaud you because a lot of people kind of get in their silos. If you think about just flooding policy and some people who are in that space aren't even thinking necessarily about climate resilience and such. And so you've, you've done a great job threading these into a, hopefully a, a coherent narrative that the, the Biden administration could uh, act on. So I think you've, you've uh, to be applauded for making this effort. Well, thanks. Yeah, I was trying to kind of knit it all together, like you said, in a way that would kind of create a comprehensive approach. Okay, well, let's just dive into these. And I'm going to ask you some follow-up questions on, you know, individual ones and others. We'll just maybe kind of, you'll explain what they are. But I'm going to read them, and then you're just going to give some background on what each of them have. And there's a lot more. And I, for my listeners, I'm going to have a link to the original piece that you shared with me. So, you know, you're not going to list every single sub-recommendation, but that you can read through those. And it's not a long piece. I highly recommend that everyone take a take a look at it. But let's starting off with number one is provide just disaster mitigation and assistance. Yes. And I've been told since then, I probably should have said provide equitable disaster mitigation Uh, so that people had a better understanding of what I was getting at here. But there's now a really large body of research that shows that lower income households, minority households suffer disproportionately from disasters and that our policies really aren't giving the assistance needed to these more vulnerable groups. We know that when disasters occur, it can, you know, threaten the financial security of these households and um, create all sorts of negative impacts for their well-being. And so I think there's a suite of policies together that our federal government could do to help target disaster assistance more effectively at the people who need help the most. So just at a high level, very few of our disaster response policies are actually means tested that by which I mean giving more money to lower income families that actually need the assistance more than, say, a very affluent family. And so I think this kind of group of policies is everything from, you know, more means testing on some of our existing grant programs to providing, you know, more detailed technical support um, and helping these households and communities navigate the difficult process of disaster assistance. We'll get to that a little bit later. Things like an affordability program for insurance that also comes up again in another recommendation we talk about about financial resilience among households. Um, but so I think there's a whole group of policies here to better help low-income families recover. I'm just wondering, here's a little bit of a rabbit hole we'll go down on this first one, is I, I did an episode where I interviewed some folks in New Orleans, and I, I had a chance to talk to a transgender man, and he had brought up how difficult it is for that community. I know this is a very sm- small population, but we, we obviously, if it's going to be a just equitable approach, have you heard anything? Because he had, what he explained, and it really just kind of blew my mind, is that the transgender community, they have trouble getting even things like ID, identification. And so the things that you're recommending here as the government really starts to factor in them, if you can't even get basic identification, you can't start plugging into these assistance programs that the government would potentially even offer. Have you heard anything about that community? I haven't from that community specifically, but I'm not surprised by it either. And it might point to sort of a bigger issue with this is that I think that there are a number of different specific communities that can run into challenges with the rigidity of some of the requirements around our assistance program. So what's coming to mind as I hear you talk about that is, for example, after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, we know that there was challenges with aid because many people couldn't provide the type of title demonstrating ownership to their land that was required to get the assistance. And what we really need is to have policy alternatives in place so that that doesn't then hamstring the entire process. So you can still get the need, you know, the pro- the funding or access to the programs or whatever it is. Yeah. So I think that would be very important to help that community. Excellent. Okay. So let's go to number two, make recovery easier. Yeah. So I started to hint at this right now, getting 
disaster assistance from the federal government after, you know, a big flood or a wildfire or a hurricane or any one of these disaster events is really unnecessarily confusing and difficult for people as they try to navigate all the different programs. And we have different federal programs have different sort of activation triggers and different requirements for whether you can access the assistance and they're in different federal agencies and some of them sort of interact with each other, right? Like you can get a loan from the Small Business Administration or you can get FEMA individual assistance and you often have to go to one before the other. But all of this kind of confusion and different criteria, there's not an easy way for a disaster victim who we should say, if you've just been, or disaster survivors, FEMA prefers to say, which is a better way to say it. You know, they're dealing with so much already, right? The emotional stress, everything you have to deal with after being through one of these events to then on top of it, have it be so confusing is just really, you know, it's, it's challenging and it's upsetting for people. So there have been several suggestions about how to improve this. So for example, after Hurricane Sandy, a rebuilding task force was set up, um, crossing the federal agencies to a uh, sort of improve response. And they had this suggestion that there should be a quote, no wrong door approach to getting federal aid. So no matter, you know, which agency is your first point of contact or which program, you can get all the information you need on all the programs available to you with very clear instructions on how to navigate them and, and, and in what order. As a sort of related suggestion has been made by the disaster recovery nonprofit SBP, where they've said you should essentially have just one application so that you only have to fill out, you know, go through one set of paperwork. And then, you know, the federal agencies, it should be on them to sort out which programs you then qualify for and get you that assistance as fast as possible so that it's just easier for people to get to get the need to get the aid that they need. As I hear this and as I read through your even your sub recommendations, it's a bit frustrating when you think, okay, we had we've had hurricanes 10 years ago. We've had them 30 years ago. We've had them, you know, why is it that we seem like we have to go through this process? And you're probably you know, the federal bureaucracy very well. Why is it that in those things that you just even mentioned, like, okay, great, they're trying to make things easier and more accessible. But why does it take so long? Why are we even having these conversations? That is such a good question. And I wish I knew the answer to it because some of these forms seem to me so straightforward and, and sort of common sense, right? I think one of the challenges is that this requires a much deeper level of interagency coordination than is going on right now, right? And so we need, you know, FEMA, S. BA and HUD, as well as maybe some of the other agencies that have smaller disaster programs, but nonetheless might um, be important in any given disaster event to all be coordinating. And like right now, there's no protocols, I don't think, but this is really a good question for someone more steeped in, in sort of the federal bureaucracy of these agencies than I am. But I don't think that there's any sort of data sharing agreements between them right now or ways to coordinate their programs. And that really should be done. And I think actually sort of a very high level recommendation. I would have is that there should be an interagency group that's coordinating all disaster response and it should be standing and, you know, in existence all the time because you see this sort of frustrating thing where, you know, like the Hurricane Sandy Task Force had some great ideas and did some great things with Sandy, and then it didn't carry over to other disasters. So we have this learning as we go through these events, but then we don't institutionalize the improvements that we need. And so I think some of this is going to take Congress being willing to adopt and legislate some reform. But but I should think that these are things, these are these are lifts that should be quite doable, I would hope. And I think of even the private sector, and I, I'm not the, usually the first one to sort of say, well, the private sector does it better in this respect. But you think of it even in insurance companies. I've had insurance companies, I won't mention any names, but I'll have an accident or there'll be some sort of disaster and, you know, next day and it just I was dazzled by just how quickly they respond. And so they have a system set up to do this and they've got their writing checks and all that. And it's just this isn't rocket science. And it's just I guess it's frustrating for people that it's become such a maze. Yeah. And maybe part of the problem is I don't know if this is just not the funds aren't appropriated by Congress or something, but we really need to just upgrade all those data systems and information systems, right, to modernize sort of the way that all these different agencies are keeping their data and then able to sort of share and coordinate that data. I had someone remark to me once, for example, that um, a lot of the stuff that's requested of disaster survivors for assistance, if you've been paying federal taxes, should be with the IRS, like you should, it should be able to be looked up with your name and address without you having to re-enter all this stuff or find documentation in the midst of the post-disaster crisis, right? So we should make it easier on people. 
Maybe there's a graduate student that studies policy out there. I wonder if there's any lessons to be learned with the the Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, because there was a major integration between the private sector and, you know, private insurance plans, but then the government's playing a coordinating role. And for all the criticism that it, it's received and it's being attacked, it's my wife does most of it, but it's 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 a pretty simple process in some ways as you're trying to find insurance and you're figuring out fees. And I think some of the recommendations that you have later on, you get down to that level about, you know, the, the way people can interact and get funding. So I wonder if there's any lessons to, to be learned from the Affordable Care Act and how they've created a dashboard in the system to try to get these programs out to people. So anyway, that's a, no, that's a great suggestion. I haven't seen anyone look at that, but I think. Yeah, there could absolutely be lessons learned in how you design those systems and make them work that aren't specific, you know, to healthcare disasters or whatever, but just about how to do things more efficiently. So I think that's a great idea. And I think there's also just on this kind of general theme, but, but switching topics a little bit. Another thing is that there are some things in statute that I think were maybe put in with good intentions to sort of you know, reduce perverse incentives or make sure that in disaster response, those funds weren't being misused, but have really limited flexibility in a way that is actually now undermining some of our overarching objectives um, in terms of building climate resilience, but also sustainability. And one that I've heard talked about and has been written up in several news articles is that, for example, certain FEMA assistants can only provide temporary housing. Um, so like yeah. here about the FEMA trailers and stuff, but it might often be actually cheaper to do some quick repairs on homes and get people back into their own home or to like invest in housing that might ultimately not be temporary, but is sort of the, the base housing. There's been some very interesting proposals out of design schools for like, you know, modular housing. So you could kind of get people into something really quickly and then build it out over time. But those types of things are sort of prohibited by the way the legislation is written. So I think there needs to be some committee or something that goes back to things like the Stafford Act with like a fine, uh, you know, pen and kind of <laughs> changes some of these things that are causing problems. Okay, let's jump to number three, improve the financial resilience of households, small businesses and communities. Yeah, so this is something that I spend a lot of time thinking about, actually, because I'm maybe one of the few people that's really captivated by thinking about insurance <laughs> markets. But, you know, there's now a lot of research that has kind of linked the ability to recover financially from a disaster event to all sorts of broader aspects of well-being, which I think intuitively makes a lot of sense, right? Because, you know, a disaster event can destroy your possessions and your home. And if you don't have the funds to, you know, rebuild, replace things, get back into safe housing and so forth, and even the process of doing that, right, is taxing. It causes mental health impacts. And if you don't have the funds to do that, then all sorts of negative things can start happening to, happening to families, right, where you have to maybe take on excessive debt or you have to divert expenditures from other important things to pay for the disaster. So maybe you, you know, spend less on health care because you have to use that money for rebuilding. And so it's really critical to. So I sort of think of having the money to get back on your feet after disaster is really foundational to all other types of resilience. Um, and the problem is right now lots of people don't have that. They don't have the financial resources. And so there's a number of ways you can get funding after a disaster, right? Maybe you have enough savings in your bank account. And for really affluent families, they might be able to just, you know, take their savings and pay for their rebuilding. Unfortunately, that's not most Americans. Most Americans do not have enough just sitting around in the bank to pay for the thousands or tens of thousands or even more when you face a really severe um, disaster event. So, so that's a problem. You could maybe take out a loan. And actually, our first line of defense, as, I, as we sort of mentioned tangentially a few minutes ago, is a loan from the Small Business Administration. Those are loans given to households. But research by a colleague of mine has found that those loans actually tend not to be available to some of the people who need them the most because they don't meet debt to income or credit score requirements. So a lot of lower income families will be locked out of access to credit and maybe it wouldn't have even been helpful for them anyway. So again, savings would be great for the affluent and credit is really helpful for maybe middle or upper income families, you know, but you can still see that we have this group of people who are not served by either of those. And then there's federal disaster aid, which is actually quite limited contrary to some um, popular misperceptions and often really delayed. So aid's not 
a super great source either. Maybe you have money from family and friends, but in disaster events, everybody tends to get hit in a community all at once, right? Like all of your neighbors are also struggling with the flood damage or the storm damage. So that also makes that difficult, which is all to say that leaves insurance as a source of funding to repair and rebuild when you don't have access to any of those others. Um, so that's why I think insurance is such a critical part of the sort of climate resilience equation. And the challenge there, as you've seen with all of these, is that the folks who need that insurance the most because they don't have savings and they don't have access to credit can't afford it. So we're in a real bit of a bind here in terms of building this necessary financial resilience comprehensively for everyone, right? And so I think we need to do more to assist lower income families with the cost of disaster insurance. There's been a lot of policy proposals put out specifically around flooding, but I think we could do this for other disasters um, as well. I think we could also be more innovative. So recently um, at the center, we've been looking at things like bringing micro insurance, which is very sort of lower coverage, lower premium insurance targeted at lower income households that's been used in the developing world to the U.S. Puerto Rico is the only place in the U.S. that's that's so far exploring that. Um, but there's other things like that that would be sort of more innovative that could be done. So I think a big piece of the financial resilience is this emphasis on how to help lower income families have the funds they need post disaster. But then there's other issues too. And now I've been going on for quite some time, but just really quickly, you know, we have to make sure the NFIP is able to handle the increasing flood risk in a lot of communities. So I think there's a bunch of NFIP reform that also falls in this camp of making sure households have financial resilience. And then we also do have a challenge that other households who might not be particularly low income still might not have insurance coverage who could really benefit from it. And that has to do a lot with lack of insurance. Um, literacy or not understanding the risk or being confused that most standard homeowners and policies like strip out a lot of disaster coverage. They don't include floods. They might have a really high deductible for hurricanes and so forth. So one of the sub headings here, stop underwriting repetitive lost properties. And, you know, it, 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 let me just read the whole thing. As discussed further below, these properties are too risky and cost more to continually rebuild than they are worth. And so that comes up a lot. And you think of flood insurance reform. And, but I almost feel that kind of contradicts maybe some of your other recommendations that so much, especially in regards to disasters, is like getting people back up on their feet. And so it seems like sometimes there's judgment calls. It's like, well, what does that mean? Does that mean rebuilding in their same spot? And there's just so many things you have to kind of factor in. Well, why should taxpayers help rebuild for the fourth time in these areas? And I don't know if you kind of would think that these are very narrow areas that would be like these properties. Maybe they're not as many as I think. But as we get more disasters and they sort of, there seems like a wider zone of people being impacted. And we have maps. We have science that will sort of explain, you know what, this area might be more prone to disaster, and even though it hasn't been hit yet. What about that? How does that factor into in regards to making, I guess, people more financially resilient? Should the government play a role into just keeping the status quo? Yeah, that I think you've hit on one of the most difficult questions, <clears throat> which is like, which areas are really simply too risky to have building? And what do we do about it? And <laughs> and your point, you know, which areas are they even? I mean, because the places in the U.S. that could be hit by any kind of disaster of any magnitude is huge. Right. And we're not going to stop all building anywhere that there might one day be a storm or a flood or a fire. On the other hand, there are areas that are getting hit over and over again, and we know are extremely high risk, so high risk that they're getting to the point where they're really not cost effective to have there. So you mentioned the repetitive lost properties in the flood insurance program, and these are homes where we spend more to rebuild them than they are even worth, right? And so I think there are narrow bands where, and that question is how narrow, and I haven't seen actually any really good mapping on this. So maybe this is an interesting research question is try to identify these areas to your point, but where it really isn't economic to be to be building there. And the question is, when we have people in those locations, how do we help get them out? And what's the sort of fair way to help get people out? And so this gets into sort of thorny questions as well along the coast of, you know, of sort of retreat in the face of sea level rise too, right? And the federal government simply can't pay to relocate everyone who's going to have to relocate in the face of sea level rise and increasing disaster risk. There's just not enough money. So the question then is, well, when and how does the does the federal government pay for it? And I think at the same time, maybe the easy piece that we can all agree on in that thorny problem is that we shouldn't be making it even harder for ourselves down the road by continuing to develop in areas that we know are super high risk, but are currently undeveloped. And how can we leave those undeveloped? You know, one thing that I've talked about is expanding the coastal barrier resources system, which essentially says 
these are areas of land where we're not going to subsidize development with federal dollars. So it doesn't prohibit development. If you know, if you want to go and build your house there, you can do it. But the federal government isn't going to underwrite the cost of the infrastructure or the roads or your flood insurance or anything else. You have to bear those full costs. And if you want to build bear those full costs, you know, go ahead. But that's not something that we should be using government dollars or taxpayer dollars for. And I think there's a compelling argument there. Now, of course, the you know the, the challenge, you know, the devil's in the details is like, how do you actually define those? areas. And we want to be thinking not just those areas right now, but over the next, say, 10 years, 20 years, and have it be sort of rolling forward. So I think I just echoed back to you that you identified a really tricky problem without giving you a super good solution. Um, well, if someone would have solved it by now. So no, I, I and we're going to get back to managed retreat. I want to get that into number five, but let's jump into number four, annually fund actions to lower our risk. Yes. So this sends back actually several years ago, a colleague and I looked at all the flood mitigation. So mitigation um, in the hazard reduction sense, not in the climate abatement sense, the sort of flood risk reduction dollars that the federal government was spending and found that like 90% of them across agencies were appropriated off budget in these disaster supplementals, right? We know after we have these really big, say, hurricane events, that Congress comes in with these massive supplemental spending bills. And that's where a lot of the mitigation spending was happening. And, you know, there's some some sense in that, in the sense that when you're rebuilding, you should build back better, you should build back stronger, you should incorporate resilience at that point when the capital stock is damaged and changing anyway. And of course, we know from, you know, sort of behavioral economics and psychology that once a disaster has happened, it's really salient for people and they're much more willing and interested in investing in risk reduction at that point. So it's a good time to kind of meet people, you know, who are concerned and, and get them to invest in these things. So it's not that that's you know, terrible that we invest a lot of our mitigation dollars that way. But the sort of downside of it is that we're waiting till after a disaster. So we're not doing anything preventative and we're only targeting money and, and lots of money. I want to be clear at the areas that happen to have been hit. Right. And we know there are other areas that are equally at risk that just didn't happen to have the landfall of the hurricane there or whatever. So it might not also be the most cost effective or the most equitable way to be distributing our mitigation dollars. And <clears throat> despite what I said about sort of the behavioral economics and that people are more willing to invest in risk reduction after disaster, which is true, there's also, it's also true that there's been excess demand for pre-disaster mitigation dollars all the time. So we're not meeting the demand that communities have to do these projects ahead of time as it is. So that might be less of a, a constraint than we might think. So I think it'd be important to sort of put more dollars in these types of you know whether you want to call it disaster mitigation, whether you want to call it climate adaptation projects at, at a local level. And of course this was done a little bit recently through the new FEMA BRIC program. Um, and I think that was a good step in that direction. And we kind of need to expand on that. And I think maybe, uh, you know, one way to do it would be just put more dollars into that type of program. But it's probably time to have a new climate adaptation specific grant program that's targeting specifically climate adaptation and that is somehow and we were just talking about the difficulties with interagency coordination. But I would think that this falls in the domains of both of all of HUD, of NOAA and FEMA. So how can we kind of have a grant program across all those kind of domains? I don't know. But I think that, that that sort of is needed. And then you can sort of target that, too. Like maybe we want to focus more on nature based solutions or maybe we want to work on um, having some innovative pilots or, you know, you could think of sort of other ways to be creative with those those grant dollars. No, and I like the idea of a, a very large climate adaptation grant program, just even just for the, the the sound of it, just getting people comfortable saying this is falling under this umbrella of adaptation so they can start connecting the dots. And I want to bring up something later related to that. But, uh, yeah, and I think the holy grail of associating mitigation revenue raising, like be it, I think you mentioned carbon taxes and such, directed yeah. into adaptation that makes the most sense. You know, it thinks we get the most traction. I think California has some sort of variation on that. And so uh, those <laughs> we're going to need a lot of money. So they're going to need to tie it to mitigation. We are going to need a lot of money. <laughs> okay. We're jumping to number five, rebuild okay. for the future and not the past. Yes. So we've talked about this a little bit already. When we're in that process of rebuilding, we need to be incorporating the climate changes at that time. I think that should be sort of really obvious, right? When risk is changing, we don't want to be building to a standard that's going to be obsolete in just a few years. And so that's both 
the way we're building, like, you know, how high we're elevating this building or this bridge, but also as we were just talking about with retreat, where we're building, like, should we be rebuilding homes here? Or now that they've been destroyed, is it a good time to be thinking about moving them somewhere else? And so as we were talking about, that's a really complicated problem. And so it's going to require a bunch of things. Some of them we mentioned, like changes in um, the Stafford Act or how the HUD grant dollars are used to enable more flexibility so that, you know, a lot of our federal disaster dollars go to rebuilding things as they were and to say, we're not going to do that. We're actually going to explicitly allow you to take the federal dollars and do something different. It also goes to what we talked about earlier. You know, President Obama had put in place a standard to say that if we're going to use federal dollars, then they have to be built to standards that take account of the best available climate science. So we need to be thinking about the life of this investment, the life of this infrastructure, whatever that is, and what climate impacts are likely to be, what they're projected to be over the life of that investment, and make sure we're building to those higher standards. I think, you know, also part of this are, well, you know, we've started We've teed up a number of these conversations, but how we handle managed retreat and stopping subsidizing repetitive lost properties. Some other things that we haven't talked about as much, though, another piece of the puzzle might be starting to send climate signals into other types of markets like mortgage markets and housing markets. Right. So I think that's part of it as well. And I think actually just to end on one thought. You know, people are connected to their community and their place. And and of course they are. And that makes some of these things hard. And I think we need to start having more conversations like you're having all the time, but in communities, in schools, with neighbors about how our communities are going to look different so that we expect that so that we don't have an expectation that our kids are going to grow up and live in this community exactly the same way. And especially this is true on the coast in the face of sea level rise, you know, like maybe your parents lived here and your grandparents lived here, but you younger generation aren't going to be able to live here. This is going to be underwater by the time you're an adult or by the time you have kids. And having those conversations so that we can face change, I think, would go a long way to then making us more willing to take the steps we need to take. I love that. Great idea. Okay. And so one of your sub-recommendations, I want to read this to you because I talk a bit about managed retreat. I, I, I love the the topic. And I, do you cross paths with AR Siders? Do you know University of Delaware? Yes. Mm-hmm. She yeah. and I have had multiple conversations. And it's always – Interesting work, yeah. And it's just, it's such a interesting hypothetical conversation you can have too. What about this? And it just makes you think about everything. And so this is what you wrote. The federal government can help facilitate managed retreat through legal and regulatory approaches for transferring ownership to the public sector as private property is inundated. Financial incentives for relocation and conservation of coastal ecosystems. Okay. So when I was reading this and I was thinking as the key line there is private property is inundated to me, and maybe this is a criticism of some of your things. It's just, it's, it's too reactive. Wouldn't we want a lot of these decisions to be made way, way in advance. I'm talking decades in advance. And so what I'm thinking is, do you mean inundated in the sense of like a storm event? Or is I'm sort of visualizing, okay, well, five feet of sea level rise is not happening tomorrow, but we should have the wisdom to sort of say, well, we're going to see this over the next 20, 30, 50 years. Let's plan today for that. Well, absolutely. I think we should plan today for that. And, and I think to the extent that we can plan today, right, we lower the chances that how we react to sea level rise is in post-disaster suffering, right? Because if we don't react, then what's going to happen is it's going to be some big storm or something that's going to upset, you know, a community and people's lives and they're going to be forced to retreat. So I, I completely agree with that. I think, hmm, I think my thoughts on managed retreat are that we sort of need several supporting things. So we need that early planning and we need incentives to get people to be thinking about relocation now. But we also probably don't have the appetite or this is raising legal questions that we need to bring some lawyers into the room for. You know, we're not going to just be appropriating back private property, right? So this has to be just like all our bio programs so far are completely voluntary for the most part. We don't like um, condemn and take back land really. So how do you incentivize people to do that? But some people aren't, right? And then we have places along like Texas and, you know, other places on the coast where there are people whose land is literally underwater now and they just have their house on stilts. And, and I know there's actually legal precedent here and some challenges with this of when, because states actually have some strip of coastal land that's public. And so if we don't make that public easement roll in, you know, this is the rolling easements idea with 
the rising waters, we could lose our coastal ecosystems and our beaches and everything because we don't allow them to migrate because eventually it hits private property and we let people put up their house on stilts and keep everybody out or whatever. But I think there's some sort of legal structures that have to be solidified as well. I, and I've had environmental lawyers on the podcast and we've talked about this in eminent domain. We, you know, to me, it's like this powerful weapon that the federal government has and they're going to have to get a lot less shy about using it when it comes to retreat from the coastline. And it's, we're going to be pushed in a lot of ways. And so, it, yeah. um, Margaret Pelosa, she's an environmental lawyer and she wrote a whole book around sea level rise. And so the whole notion of like, what, could you use eminent domain as a way of doing it? Yes, of course, of course you could. It's just, it's more of like setting, baseline standards to like why is it in the public's interest for us to condemn this land and take it from you and it's just like well look at all these gas stations are now super fun sites because they're getting inundated and you know you talk about the houses on stilts there's still so much government infrastructure that goes into keeping these places sustainable like be electrical lines and the water and so the notion that they've oh they've just built on stilts there's <laughs> government hasn't gone anywhere and so uh, there's no certain- those are those are great points. And it reminds me of a colleague, Thomas Rupert, who's done some work on, you know, as sea level rises and if, if property is abandoned or gas stations or whatever, you could have real ecological messes at the coast and you need some way to clean that up and restore the land. So we also need to be thinking about the structures for that and how to fund that as well. Sorry, it just made me think of that when you mentioned it. I know Thomas Rupert. He's at the University of Florida, right? Yeah. Listen, we could do a whole episode around number five. We're we're not going to do it. All right. Number six, strengthen our infrastructure. I think this one's really straightforward. I mean, everyone knows that our infrastructure is in such need of repair, right? I mean, it consistently gets these failing grades all the time. You know, there's that infrastructure report card and it's always like a D or something. So it's not just climate, but we have crumbling infrastructure as it is. And so what we need to do as we rebuild that infrastructure is take into account the climate changes that are going to be happening, right? Whether it's to relocate infrastructure that shouldn't be there anymore given sea level rise or it needs to be built stronger or different because of changing storm patterns or wildfire patterns or whatever it is. And, you know, both sides of the aisle have their own proposals for infrastructure bills. And, you know, I would think now is a really nice time in the middle of the COVID downturn to put together a good infrastructure bill that includes some of this climate work as well. And I, I'm going to jump to seven because I think it's related. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you have harness nature for risk reduction. And when I was reading this, I'm my background is in natural resources and wildlife conservation. And you know the natural resources they never get the attention, they never get the funding that the, like the built environment does. And so I, when it comes to climate change, I think there's a real opportunity to marry when you say infrastructure investment. And you do make a great point. This you have number seven, harness nature, but serious investment in natural resources as a way to build a more resilient society, not just because we want to, you know, create some new parks. I mean, it's truly like extreme heat. And if could you elaborate on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. And the I've been I have this, you know, on the side, I've been reading a lot about the sixth extinction and the ecological crisis we're in and the crashing biodiversity. And I think, you know, that crisis is actually sort of on par with the climate crisis and solving two of addressing both of them together in solutions like nature based solutions that could help, you know, improve and restore our ecosystems and help better protect us about against climate related disasters, I think, just makes so much sense. So these are things like you talked about, like, um, you know, coastal wetlands and mangroves, buffering storm surge, or yeah, like using green infrastructure in cities and green roofs and, you know, greater use of urban parks to help combat urban heat island effects. We know urban heat's going to be getting a lot worse as the climate warms. So I think there's, you know, a whole range of, of types of solutions like that that can that can be both important for ecological systems and also provide all these benefits in terms of recreation and improving the livability of cities and so forth. So and I, you know, I kind of liked as well the idea that you could link this with um, the UN Decade on, rest, uh, on Ecological Restoration that starts right now. And kind of be part of sort of uniting that global effort to focus on degraded landscapes as well. And my one thought on that is that maybe we could put together something inspired by both the Civilian Conservation Corps and also our current AmeriCorps programs, which I think are just outstanding, and put together something like a Restoration Corps. So you have a group of people who go out yeah, and can focus on ecological restoration. And right, you could think about that being 
you know, forest management in the West or helping restore lands in Appalachia that have been scarred by coal mining or places in New New England that are stressed by climate changes. I mean, there's just so much ecological restoration that could be done around the country that I think would be helpful and put people to work right now when we know people need it. And I think, interestingly, as I was kind of exploring this idea, I learned that the UK is actually trying to do something very similar to that, too. So it seems to be an idea who I hope's time has come. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the U.S. doesn't play very nice with these UN-related <laughs> things, unfortunately, though obviously very admirable. Yeah, I just I want someone to kind of step up and just make the argument that Natural. If we're going to climate-proof our natural environment, there's going to be such you know benefits for 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 humanity, and it sometimes it gets sort of caught up in sort of sub issues, and you know we just we need more parks for people to visit and such like. And it's much bigger than that, and it's just it's almost its own insurance policy. It's like oh, it's you know you're investing in trees, and you're what, what, when you're thinking about biodiversity and stuff, and you're just buying yourself opportunities and options in the future by preserving the, these natural areas or even restoring them, like you said. And so um, I like that. I mean, these are the life support systems of our planet. We depend on them. So yeah, I I like your you, the way you phrase that as an insurance policy for us. Yeah. Okay, the final one here. Pay Wrap for, it up with eight. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, number eight. Pay for resilience investments by fighting climate change and inequality. Yeah. So as you noted a few minutes ago, a lot of these ideas cost money and some of them cost a lot of money. (laughs) And so I understand that. But I think the important thing here, right, is the sort of basic economic insight. The taxes aren't just revenue raising things. They create incentives and disincentives and guide the flow of capital in our economy. And so, you know, any environmental economist will tell you, you can use taxes to tax what they call externalities, things that are causing harm on other people. Climate change is the biggest example of that. And so we can do things like tax carbon, which would go a long way to to helping us actually lower our emissions and direct dollars into um, low carbon technologies and sources of the economy. But we can use that revenue then to pay for all these resilience building things. And I also think at the same time, you know, we talked about the climate crisis. We talked about the um, sort of biodiversity crisis. I think the third crisis that we're facing right now as as a planet is inequality. And inequality, you know, globally is a problem. And in the U.S., it's like as high as it's been in the last five decades. Um, and the numbers really, they make my jaw drop, actually. But that's not just a natural you know, state of the world, that's a policy choice. And so as many people have pointed out, you know, even a very small tax on the sort of astronomically wealthy can generate enormous sums of money that could help with climate resilience, that could help with inequality as well. So those are the two kind of tax proposals. <laughs> tax the rich. I like it. It's it's just dumbfounding how Americans are so easily convinced that we shouldn't be doing these things and raising revenue and the whole notion of, you know, we should be a middle class society, not once that favors. This is not an economic podcast, but I'm just I'm always amazed how people work against their own self-interest, you know, not looking for a handout, but just like like you said, this is equality. And we've we've kind of forcing those apart. It's just it's crazy. Yeah, I think there's sort of an ethical dimension, but there's also a very clear economic argument here, too, that economies do better and are more stable when you have a thriving middle class. And we have just gutted our middle class. So agreed. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> I won't get on the soapbox <laughs> here. I'll just, I'll just leave it there. We'll leave it the union episode for the next one. All right. <laughs> Okay, so we went through those eight. I have some follow-up questions. Those are fantastic. Again, I recommend people. There's a lot more there. You covered a lot of ground, but there's a lot more there that people can see. But it's a very readable uh, eight recommendations. But I'm going to give you some feedback on what I think was one big glaring omission. It deserved to be number nine or number one or whatever. And you actually alluded to it in your conversation before, but it's not – I. I went through it a couple times and I didn't necessarily see this. You talked about building awareness in society about these things that we have to do, about adaptation and, you know, communities and explaining what we're doing here. I think that deserves its own recommendation that the government needs to be in the business of communicating what adaptation is, what climate, like adapting to climate change really means for society. And I think people even in our space, we get too caught up that this is this wonky technical kind of field. And I like to say on my podcast frequently, it's just I think adapting to climate change will be the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced. And I know we've faced quite a few challenges, but I mean that. And I don't think people really understand the roller coaster we're about to experience. And the government shouldn't be shy about communicating all that. And if there was a way that they're 
explaining that, creating a narrative. You know, we, we j- we've just gone through like distilling narratives down to like MAGA, right? It's down to that simplicity. And yeah. so we, sh- we shouldn't be shy ab- about that. And I think there's a real need to get people comfortable knowing what's going on here as opposed to being, oh, this is just about responding to disasters and helping just in that, oh, that hurricane hit now, we're going to forget about it. It needs to be tied to that broader narrative around adapting to climate change. I completely agree with you. And I need to have Doug's number nine that we add in there now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You're, you're right. Of course, you're right. And, and and there's so many facets of that as well, too, right? I mean, like you said, the sort of broader narrative, but I think also, as we talked about before, you know, curriculum in schools and K on, on up. Funding it. I mean, I'm serious. It's, it's a national, and you know, you have to be careful whenever government sort of gets behind something, but it, you know, the working with the private sector, you're working with Hollywood. It's just like this. We need to get the word out there, and this has to be consistent and incessant, and this is going to go on for decades that we are, this is our, our next phase. And so uh, we're, we're just too shy about it. And I think people in our space, you know, we just get caught up in the sort of the very, narrow focus that we're working on. And I think it's a missed opportunity. And that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast and make adapting to climate change more exciting because that's what it is. Yeah, no. And I think another thing you've done really well with the podcast too is highlighting, which I also hear you saying, how diverse this is and how many, it's going to touch everything, everyone's life and all sectors. And so I think I certainly you know, don't keep that in the forefront of my mind as much as I should. You know, I was trained as an economist and I tend to have that lens on the world. But I recently watched a documentary that was anthropologists talking about, you know, not just how are we going to move our people and our property, but how are cultures going to adapt and change? And especially cultures around the world that are so tied to to the land and the current climate. And as all of that's changing, those are those are equally difficult and challenging things. Yeah, we're on the same boat. (laughs) The next version, we'll see number nine. Okay, so a few more questions. The most obvious one I had was just like, have you shared this with anyone, the Biden campaign? I don't have any close ties with the Biden campaign, so I don't know what they're thinking on this. They've obviously made some fantastic announcements about climate abatement and the climate team they're putting together is you know, obviously fantastic. I've not heard much out of, you know, and what I know is what you, what anyone knows in the kind of general news reporting on this on the issue of adaptation though. And I think it makes all the sense in the world that they start with abatement and getting a handle on reducing our emissions. But, you know, I think you'll agree that adaptation has to be a part of the federal policy conversation right now too. So I was actually considering delaying this conversation because today is the day that Georgia is the election for the (laughs) Senate. And so the question could be very different. Oh, well, the Democratic Senate, you know, what are our chances for getting some of these things passed versus like, oh, the Republican Senate and we'll know tomorrow. So when people are yeah, actually, actually <laughs> I was actually corresponding with a Senate staffer, I will say this morning on this idea of a ecological restoration core. And they made exactly your point, which was it's going to entirely depend on who has control of the Senate, whether we see some type of jobs bill like this that has a service component to it, whether it's restoration or other things. OK, so for my listeners. This will be published after we know the election results. And so you might just be like, oh, what could have been right or hey, great. They called it. And so but I mean, realistically, uh, and you don't have to go through all eight, but just it, let's say it's a friendly Congress. Are, are all these things pretty doable? I think they're doable. Yeah. And I think a lot of them should have bipartisan support. I know that feels hard to say in such a polarized world right now, but I really hope we can move beyond the polarization of the last four years and get back to realizing that there's actually, when you poll the American people, much greater agreement on the need to take action on a number of these things than hearing the sound bites from our politicians would suggest. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I also curious that, you know, I do see s- some of these in the, the Green New Deal and uh, you've I've probably read through that. And so there's some overlap there. And that has been so vilified. That's become the boogeyman for everything bad in the universe. And when I read it, I'm just like, oh, this is a pretty modest proposal to try to deal with the challenges of, uh, uh, for, for everyone. And so do you, do you see some, some of the overlap with the Green New Deal? Yeah, there's clearly some overlap. Um, I think, yeah, that's right. And I think the sort of broad idea that we should harness the current moment as an opportunity to start really addressing the crises is, is how we should all be thinking, right? So COVID has been a huge hit to our economy. It's been so upsetting for so many people having to deal with all the health impacts. And it's time to kind of 
tailor our policy to get us out of this pandemic crisis to also start addressing these other things, which I think kind of underlies some of the Green New Deal philosophy, right? We need to help people who are struggling economically right now, but we can do that in a way that promotes a transition to a lower carbon economy and starts building climate resilience. And a lot of this is just branding. The poor guys with the Green New Deal, again, like I th- I think it's a relatively modest, uh, I mean, it's ambitious, but it's modest in a lot of ways too, but all of a sudden it's become this boogeyman. Oh, the Green New Deal is going to, socialism is going to destroy your lives. And so whatever you do, like if this, you know, gets more traction here, just come up with some clever name, like, you know, eight ways to get a massive tax cut, you know, completely unrelated to what it is, but just they can't, they can't vilify your title, you know, so. um. Yeah, that's true. Something that that, that resonates more. I'm not sure resilience actually resonates much with anyone, but I was on that same idea, though. I just this this weekend, my family watched the movie um, Hidden Figures, which I know has been around for a number of years, but we finally saw it. Yeah. But through the whole thing, I was thinking, you know, the way the country came together around the Apollo project with just such a cooperative spirit is exactly what we need right now around these challenges. And I think part of that is branding, right? And that we're in this together, but we can get out of it together and, and make our society better. So I don't know. We need, we need a good, a good spokesperson. Oh, I'm too wonky well, to be the spokesperson. We need someone else who can. <laughs> I totally agree, and, and I think the Democrats and you know, sort of liberal politics in general, that just we're so there's so much nuance and there's so much wishy washiness around things that it just people don't react very well to that. Someone just needs to seize the the narrative and just be confident in it and say we have to adapt. This is happening, and just not be apologetic and qualify the heck out of it. That's just what happens, and that's just our natural inclination, right? We're just like, well, there's some nuances. No. We have to do yeah. this. And that's and, definitely the, the nature of researchers, right? To be sure we're very transparent about every, about every, yeah. I know it's, we'll get there. It, hopefully it won't be more reactive in an emergency situation, but if we, you know, if we get the right stars aligning, we'll do it. But all right, listen, as we wrap this up, this has been fantastic. I've learned a ton and I'm very, I hope, you know, I have a lot of people who listen who are in government and such. I hope they look at these things and take these things and and bring them into their own day jobs and such. But I think what we should do maybe is in in a year, we get you back on, not to say that we have to wait a year to have to get you back on if there's other things, but we kind of assess. We look at these and we kind of look at what the Biden administration has done. And Congress doesn't necessarily have to act for the Biden administration, the executive branch to act on some of these things you're talking about. And maybe if, if you're doing that too, is you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm tracking these things. We kind of give a scorecard or we have that conversation of where we are maybe 12 months from now. I love it. I think that's great. Awesome. Let's do it. And hopefully it'll be a happy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, we've gotten one sub heading that they've accomplished out of 70. So no, well, we're going to be optimist here. We're going to be optimist. All right, Carolyn, always a treat. It's great having you on. I mean, this is your second time. And so uh, your first episode was a really popular one. And I appreciate what you're doing. And, you know, definitely thanks for coming on and for sharing what you're doing here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I love chatting with you. It's great. Hey, Adapters, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Carolyn Kuski. Check out my show notes to have access to her full list of recommendations. Okay, as I mentioned in the introduction, I have a new recurring segment called Adapting to Climate Change with Alice Hill. As most of you know, Alice has been on the podcast before, and we had some discussion behind the scenes that would be great to get her on on a more recurring basis. So semi-frequently, and we're still figuring out how often... I'll include a shorter interview with Alice based on some of the work or topics in the news after one of my full episodes. I recorded these originally on Simpatico Studios, so if you want to see this as a streaming TV interview, check that out. Okay, let's check in with Judge Alice Hill. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Joining me is Judge Alice Hill. Alice is a David Rubenstein Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Alice's work at CFR focuses on the risks, consequences, and responses associated with climate change. Alice previously served as Special Assistant to President Obama and Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council staff, where she led the development of national policy to build resilience to catastrophic risks. Hey, Alice, welcome back to Simpatico. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. Long time no see. All right. We're going to talk, you know, it's, this is going to be a shorter interview with you, but we want to bring you on and we're going to talk about some of these subjects that you, you, you've been speaking out on. And you recently wrote a piece on wildfires. And um, can you share what you were trying to say in that article? Well, wildfires give us a glimpse of what's ahead in terms of utter 
decimation of certain areas. And after some event where people lose their homes, their livelihoods, may have lost loved ones, the natural response is we want to come back. We want to go back and we want to be right back where we are, where we love this community. And that's a sign of inspiration and really um, joy for people in a very terrible time. But with climate change, we need to find ways to examine the question whether it's wise to build back in the same place. And this is particularly brought home with wildfires. It's true in flooding as well. But with wildfires, we know that areas that have burnt in the past are likely to burn again. So if we put back a home in an area that is at high risk, say on a a steep slope or uh, some other factor that increases its risk to future fire, we're putting people in harm's way, not only the people who live there, but also those that have to come to their rescue. And so we need to engage in a discussion going forward. How best can we plan for that? And that means that before communities rebuild, we should look at whether the land use choices that we made in the past still make sense going forward. And that means that means that we need to bring in a number of players, including insurance companies, so that we make it easier for people to take their insurance proceeds and move them to some other location, if that's their choice, to build somewhere else or to buy somewhere else. Uh, and look more holistically about ways that we can make that area safer. And if we can't, what are the better choices? That requires engagement on the community level and preferably uh, engagement would occur before the event because after the event, it's people are rightfully concentrating on how to get back on their feet. And it's just much harder to have the conversation after a terrible event than it is before. It's tough enough before, but after the event, it's just a lot to ask. Well, one of the points you brought up within the article is there's this notion of we will rebuild and the community leaders and elected officials and such. And you kind of make a point of saying that it's a misguided statement to be saying to people, even though they, you want people to kind of get back on their feet quickly, but why is that misguided? Well, it may be putting them at risk. And with wildfire, unlike flood, we don't have a national wildfire insurance program. So let's say you do rebuild. We may, those people may discover that because their home is already at high fire risk, insurance is basically the cost is not sustainable. And that becomes then an investment in a home that is difficult to sell uh, because you can't get insurance on it. So we want to prevent people from discovering that they have poured uh, a lot of money into what is typically their major asset, often going to fund their retirement and discover that that asset has greatly reduced in value because they can't get insurance on it and because it's at high risk. So there's this notion too, and that people are living in, you know, some of these states like California in these local communities are actually encouraging people to live in these fire zones. And yet we're trying to argue that climate change is making these worse. And so there is that tension of like, well, we're really making some bad placement decisions on top of the risk getting worse how is that communicated? Like people in, you know, FEMA and those kind of groups, what, what are they saying? Are, is there, how do you discourage these local communities from allowing people to kind of build in these fire zones? It's very difficult. Uh, we've created in the United States a moral hazard pro- problem, essentially for local leaders, local and state leaders, because they make all the decisions about where people build and really how they build, what building code is applied. Um, and their incentive typically is they want a lot of tax revenue. So the city thrives or the community thrives. They want people to move in. It's going to be good for everyone. And, um, so in some instances, they allow development in at risk areas because people like to live in at risk areas. We all like to live right next to the water. We'd like to live in the middle of a forest or next to a forest. They're beautiful spots but actually they can often carry more risk. 
And so um, the local officials will permit this development. And in many instances, they don't want to insist on a very robust building code because it could increase the cost of the house. Uh, If you have to raise it up to avoid flooding, it's going to cost more. Um, And so, but then those local officials know that the federal government is often the final backstop. And if there's a disaster, the federal government will pay somewhere between 75 and 100% in many instances of that disaster. So it's a moral hazard. We're on the one hand, um, not insisting that those who are going to need disaster relief make better choices up front to reduce risk. And That's a conversation we need to have because it's unsustainable for us to just keep pouring money back into communities. They rebuild exactly as they were. And then an even worse event comes. And of course, the whole thing's demolished again. That's unsustainable. That's not really hard math for anyone. So we need to push investment into risk reduction to be prepared for climate worsened events. Okay. Do you feel that government should stop buying out properties at some point? And when will the cost come to a reckoning? No, I I believe in uh, government buyouts. I think that they should be means tested and I think we should put some conditions on them. We are beginning to see that, for example, the Army Corps of Engineers um, in its work on uh, dune replenishment basically said everybody's got to agree to this or we're not going to invest in doing this because if you leave a gap in the dune, it's, you know, the water's going to wash through. So um, same thing with uh, buying out homes. If we leave one home that still needs water, power, roads, but all the other homes are left, that still doesn't really make sense. But if we determine this strip of land, there are eight homes on here, if all eight agree to go, we will buy them all out and then we'll uh, go for that. And that that is a new move that we've seen more of that. That puts pressure on the local officials to say to those eight homeowners, if there's one that doesn't want to go, okay, well, we're going to take your house by eminent domain. Again, a really difficult conversation, but it doesn't make sense for us to buy a few of those homes and leave the rest there. That that shouldn't be federal taxpayer money doing doing that, in my opinion. I should know this, but I've only recently moved to an area where wildfire is a risk that, you know, in the East and you have the the like official terms, like one in a 500 year flood, one in a hundred year flood. And they use these when they're like deciding where people live. Is there anything equivalent for wildfires that there's an overlays and such? I know you're, they have yes. wildfire risk, but like that, it like. Level. Yeah, there, there are maps. Um, We don't have mapping of the entire United States. Now we have mapping of flood for the entire United States, thanks to a private foundation. The First Street Foundation uh, actually got the job done, including future climate risks. So anyone who has their address can, uh, and I think Realtor.com is now covering this. You can type in your address and see what your flood risk is. Very useful tool. We do not have that for fire. We have mapping. California probably has the most sophisticated mapping but they don't map for future risk. They do map for historical risk and they give rankings, extreme, very extreme. I've forgotten the exact rankings, but you can um, easily figure out where your home is. It's not parcel. It's not home by home. It's generally uh, a higher uh, granularity than that. But with fire, Home by home, you can't know because it depends on when the embers are, whether the embers enter your home. And if you've got two homes that are burning next to you on either side, probably there's a greater chance your home's going to burn because something's going to fly over into your home. A little different with flooding, uh, uh, that the way that risk unfolds. Okay, so the recent wildfires in California and even Australia, about a, it's been about a year and a half or so. How do you feel the media did in covering the issue and even linking it to climate change? Do you think they did a better job than they've done in the past? Yes, I think year over year, we're seeing much better reporting on climate change. Um, Part of that is we have a couple of... uh, organizations, one notably Climate Central, whose mission is really to inform meteorologists about climate risk and to make it communicate better about climate risk. So they they create all sorts of graphs, other things, not, not branded. They just say, here, go use this so you can tell the story. 
And the additional development has been the improvement in attribution science. It used to be when I started talking about climate about a decade ago, I'd have to say very carefully, now, you know, no, no event can be traced directly to climate, that we don't have the science for that. That's not true anymore. Very quickly after an event, the attribution scientists can calculate how much of this event is the worsening of this event is attributable to climate change from warming. And um, so we can say with much greater confidence, identify which events are climate worsens. And I'd say it's now uh, the vast majority of these events are climate worsened. You know, my last question was going to be where if planners or like local officials wanted to go somewhere, but you just explain where they could go to learn more about some of these threats and such. And so Climate Central is a good one. Well, it's great, Alice, that you're covering these issues in these articles. You're bringing focus on very specific issues. And I think that's a very practical way of getting that information out there. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. What a pleasure. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Carolyn Kuski for coming on the pod. Just a note, I'm recording this a few days after my conversation with Carolyn. So now we know the Democrats won the two Georgia elections and now control the Senate. This is very exciting news on the climate front, not only on the mitigation side, but many of the recommendations that Carolyn has developed have a much greater chance of happening. Very, very good news. And I'm serious about adding number nine, Carolyn. Let's get a massive adaptation communication strategy up and running. All hands on deck with that one. And thanks to Judge Alice Hill for coming on and what I hope is the first of many interviews. It's been great getting to know Alice and very excited to include her on a recurring basis on America Daps. She's a great spokesperson and a leader in adaptation. Hopefully we'll see Alice spin off on her own podcast when the time is right. And in these shorter interviews with Alice, we recorded those on Simpatico. So if you're interested in seeing streaming TV version of these interviews, go check out Simpatico and find out more. Links are in my show notes. Okay, so if you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast via America Apps, think about using a podcast. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I normally connect with folks at conferences and meetings, but that has been shut down for the last year. So definitely reach out directly to me if you have some ideas for this type of episode. That's how I keep the lights running. So maybe your organization wants to highlight the great work you're doing. Email me at americadaps at gmail.com. Some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page in the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join. We have some insider conversations there, and I post stuff that I'm not doing on my main Facebook wall, and people share the sort of work that they're doing. So definitely check that out. And on that note, I love hearing from you. Take the time to email me just to say who you are, and if you're in the field, let me know what you do. This is incredibly valuable to me. It helps me come up with ideas for shows, and it gives me a better understanding who's out there listening, who's out there getting benefit from the podcast. So please, I would love to hear from you. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out the website, americadaps.org. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.